Welcome to the Global River Church Discipleship Teaching of the Week. We hope you enjoy today's message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit globalriver.org. This guy named Tozier is a Missionary Alliance Church. Has anybody here ever been to a Missionary Alliance Church? It's kind of like... Uh, it's almost like ours. Pastor Tom was the assist, one of the assistant pastors at a Missionary Alliance Church. Well, they were started by a guy named A.W. Tozer. He's one of the generals. Tozer pastored several, several, Christine, what in the world is that? That's a, Christian, that's, <laughs> I, oh, I'm not perfect, you know. <laughs> And Missionary Alliance Churches anchored, authored more than 40 books and served as editor of the Alliance Life, a, mon- a, month's, a monthly denominational publication for the Christian Missionary Alliance. At least two of his books were considered spiritual classic, The Pursuit of God and the Knowledge of the Holy. Has anybody read those? I haven't read those. But uh, that's two of the... It was a tremendous accomplishment for a man who never received formal education at all. And then next slide is in 1928, Tozer accepted a call to pastor a, a church at Southside Gospel Tabernacle in Chicago. He was there for 30 years. That's a long time. All right, the next guy I really like, <laughs> George Washington Carver. I've, I've seen his, his stuff on TV, uh, excerpts of uh, people who know George Washington Carver. He described, he was a black man who dis, he dis accepted Jesus Christ when he was 10 years old. He was separated from his family and suffered all the effects of racial prejudice. Now, one thing good about George Washington Carver is no matter what happened to him, he was not, he was not bitter. He kept his bitterness away from him. For years, farmers in the South planted cotton without rotating the crops. As a result, the soil became worn out. And it says in the Bible, you plant for six years, seventh year, let go, right? And it says that in the Bible. Well, George Washington Carver said, well, so he had to do something. Uh, Next slide, Mr. Carver asked, Mr. Creator, why did you make the peanut? God led him to discover 300 products made from the peanut, including mayonnaise, cheese, shampoo, instant coffee, flour, soap, rubber, face powder, plastics, adhesive, axle grease, and pickles. From the sweet potato, he he, uh, discovered 150 uses, library paste, vinegar, starch, shoe blacking ink, and molasses. (laughs) Isn't that something? Just a peanut. I've always uh, known about George Washington Carver because I kind of like read books about him and read things about him. He was quite a man. But the secret to his life was he didn't get bitter. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Joseph was awesome. His life and trust in Christ helped him conquer the negative effects of poverty and racial prejudice. In the end, he earned a well-deserved respect and admiration of his peers and the grateful acknowledgement of future generations. I, we're in this, uh, this mode now of uh, black, whites, 
black lives don't matter. Have you ever heard of that? That's uh, very common right now. I was a, a kid growing up in Birmingham, Alabama, and I was there when uh, Martin Luther King visited. <laughs> and they, yeah, you know, he did, they put him in jail. My dad was an ambulance chaser. <laughs> he liked being around, so he went downtown by the jail, and he saw Martin Luther King. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, that's, uh, that's his claim, claim to frame, I think, to fame. But I went into one of these black, black houses. This, this little black kid was riding a bicycle, and I was in my, I was 12, I guess. And I went into their house. It was just like a shack. I went in there, and everything was clean and nice. And I thought, whoa, this house, this is a clean house. So even though that person was poor, they didn't, they, they, uh, they kept up their, their home, whatever they had, and I, I think whatever, whatever we have, we have to say, Lord, I don't have a lot, but I've got what I have is from you. Help me to treat that well and to do well with it. <laughs> All right, next slide. Amy Carmichael realized that nothing could be more important. I don't even know who this lady is. Do I know her? What, what does she do? And she, she said, she realized that nothing could be more important than living her life for Jesus, who, with nothing of worldly possessions, had given his very life for her. She knew he was calling her to do something, or to do the same and give all of her life to him. This meant she must become dead to the world and to the applause, to its customs, fashions, and laws. Now, we all have to do this. We all have to be dead to the world. And, and if we're not, we can't make it. We're not uh, not living the, the abundant life. So Amy Carmichael was one of the generals. In 1885, she was commissioned by the Church of England, Zena Missionary Society, to go to India. This is what's so amazing. She served for 56 years as God's servant without a furlough. Y'all know what a furlough is? 56 years without going home. That's amazing. A major part of her work there was, was, was devoted to rescuing children who had been dedicated by their families to be temple prostitutes. 56 years. I, I was real impressed with that. I didn't know who she was, but that was really impressive. Now, the next one, I know you know who this one is. Go to the next slide, uh, Mike. Y'all know who that is? <laughs> Was he a Christian? I always, I always wondered about that. Was, Abra was Abraham Lincoln a Christian? Well, he was not. He didn't accept Christ as his Savior until later in life. And while he governed the nation by many of the principles written in God's Word, he lacked personal relationship with Jesus Christ. After the death of his son Willie, Lincoln heard for the first time of Christ's personal love and forgiveness for each man and woman. But he still was not a Christian. He had not given his life. Even his son died. And he wrote, when I left Springfield, I asked the people to pray for me. I was not a Christian. When I buried my son, the, se the severest trial of my life, I was not a Christian. But when I went to Gettysburg and saw the graves of thousands of our soldiers, I then and there consecrated myself to Christ. Isn't that something? I, so he was a Christian. 
right before he got shot. Finally, Lincoln had found the inner peace he longed for in his life. Following his salvation experience, he worshiped regularly at the New York Avenue Presbyterian Church and planned to make a public confession of his faith, and then the war ended. He was, just right after he won the election, he was assassinated. But he was a Christian. You'll see Abraham Lincoln in heaven. Isn't that something? Uh, four and a half years about. Yeah, he, he, he went through a whole four-year cycle, and then half a year he got, he got shot at that point in time. So he was an awesome man. He, he was very, uh, if, you, if you look at his life, in fact, they made a song of this. Lincoln failed at almost everything. Failed to, to be a senator, right? Failed to be a representative. Failed, failed all, everything. And then he got elected president. <laughs> so he didn't let that get him down. He just said, okay, let's try something else. All right, now the next one, I, if, if I have a mentor in my life, it's been Catherine Marshall. I read one of her books five times. It's called The Helper. And I still remember a lot of things that she taught in that book. And uh, she was quite a lady. The last book I read of hers was Where is God in My Darkest Night? Something. I think it's like that. Darkest Night. Where was God in my darkest night? She had a grandchild who was deformed at birth. And, and the doctors gave him a week to live. She, she grabbed... She sent email. I don't know if she had text messages at that time or not, but she sent letters, I think, to her friends and said, come and meet me at, at this place that the presidents go to New, off of New York. What's the name of that island? No? It's, it's where they got these million-dollar houses. That's where Kennedy was going when he got killed. <laughs> Vineyard, Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, that's, uh, that's off Boston, I'm sorry. <laughs> anyway, he went to, he went, she had a, a house there on Martha's Vineyard and said, if you don't believe that God will heal her, don't come. So 30 people came. They prayed for a week. And the grandchild died. Now, what's that tell you? She was devastated by this because Catherine believed with all her heart that her grandchild would be, would be healed because it says whatever you ask for, you get. So she didn't uh, get what she asked for. It's amazing. For six months, she walked around the house in her house, house in her, what do you call that, nightgown? And slippers, nightgown and slippers for six months. At that time, she was married to a man that was the editor of Guidepost magazine. Has anybody here read Guidepost? Oh, yeah, it's, it's really an awesome, it's an awesome book. It's, uh, it's got a lot of good stories in it. But the editor of that magazine was who she was married to, and it took him six months to get her out of the house. 
She didn't want to talk about God. She didn't want to pray. She didn't want to do anything. <laughs> but she was saved at the, at, at the age of 15. And she wrote, uh, there's a man called Peter. There's a movie out called A Man Called Peter about her first husband. I've seen that a couple of years ago. I saw it again. Uh, it's still a good movie, it, but it's really old. <laughs> it's in the 50s, I would think. She wrote a book about it. That was one of her first books after he died. He was, what, she was 23, and he was 43. She was only 23 when she married Peter and moved to Washington, D.C., where he became pastor of New York Avenue Presbyterian. Now, where have we heard that before? Yeah, that's where the presidents went. So it was a really prestigious place and became chaplain of the Senate. So Peter Marshall, her husband, first husband, was very, he died of a heart attack at 43, and she married again to the editor of Guidepost Magazine. But through it all, she developed an understanding of the Holy Spirit. I heard Billy Graham I was, I was in my 20s, I think, when I read the book, The Helper. I heard him say he had read books two and three times a piece sometimes. So I said, well, I'll read it again. So I read The Helper again. <laughs> I want to know more about the Holy Spirit, so I read it. I found out later that the Holy Spirit's always around. If, if you want, he's like the guy sitting on the couch. <laughs> he's always there, always ready. Let's flip it. Says, Catherine went on to become a noted Christian author and speaker. A man called Peter, her uh, husband's biography, is one of the best-known works she wrote. Yeah. Yeah. She's awesome. Yeah. She, yeah, she's, Catherine Marshall is since deceased, but uh, she's written some awesome things, and I like her. I, I think of any person in this world, man or woman, Catherine Marshall has had more impact on me than anybody else. Okay, Charles Finney. Now, I'm going to tell you a little tidbit about him before. I, I, as you know, I read a lot, and I read about these people <laughs> all the time. Charles Finney was on a train one time, and the train was going down the tracks, and these farmers, when they saw the train, fell out. <laughs> fell out in the spirit. And uh, they found out Finney was on, on board. <laughs> so he, he was quite a guy. He was going to be a lawyer. Finney was. And uh, no other person has influenced the subject of revival in America like uh, Charles' grandson, Grandison, how do you say that? Grandison, Finney. Okay. In his published me me memoirs, Finney said he came to a point of decision. The question of his soul salvation had to be settled before he could continue well chronicled experiences and tell how his house one morning he went out for a walk and during this time he was alone with God he remembered kneeling in prayer now I read a little bit more about this in, in another book 
uh, Finney had an awesome experience. Waves, waves of liquid love. Has anybody here had that? Liquid love. He just felt like liquid love. I don't even know what that. It's like gold was was going in and out of his body. And uh, he was. I I've come to a belief now that God, just like the Derek Prince. I've been reading a lot about Derek Prince. We'll talk about him on a Wednesday night. But I think God says you're it. I think God knows what what you're going to do, knows how you're going to act, and knows and knows you can handle it. So he gives you, boom, he touches you right away. And that's what happened to Charles Finney. He was going to be a lawyer. He had no inkling that God didn't want him to be a lawyer. God wanted him to be a, an evangelist. All right. Finney fearlessly addressed his listeners with passionate revivalism, never sidestepping the awful awfulness of hell and unbelief. I was listening to a radio broadcast What's that guy's name? He's one of the, uh, oh, I can't think of his name. He's one of the uh, evangelists. He was saying, you know, when people go to funerals, I've done funerals of people we didn't think were Christians. That's hard to do. Pastor Tom talked about that uh, when uh, Catherine died. And you don't want to go, you don't want to be officiating at a funeral when they're, when you don't know if they're going to heaven or not. Um, but Finney was the kind of guy that he believed that God had called him to be a pastor. God had sent him that experience to strengthen his belief in the Holy Spirit. It's been uh, my understanding that after God does something so awesome as this, sometimes he, let, he, he wants to see if you really believe. It gets tough. So sometimes he'll, he'll do these awesome things and you, and you wonder, but he's wanting to know if you're going to stick with it. Now, Alan did not. Solomon did not. They were both touched by God, but they, they failed. So you can all you have within you the uh, ability to fail. <laughs> but Finney had a quite a now one one thing that, that how many of y'all have ever heard of Bill Johnson? <laughs> Bill Johnson. I was I was sitting in the, on a bus on a mission trip by one of Bill Johnson's friends, and we were talking, and he said, "You know, Bill Johnson." would preach the same way after he had this magnificent experience with God, but the same thing did not happen. They preach the same sermons, everybody staring at you, not, not doing anything, and then preaching it again, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit affects everybody in the room. So that's the difference. <laughs> that's between a good Holy Spirit... Yeah. <laughs> All right. This one, I, 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 the hot book, The Hiding Place. How many of y'all have read that? Uh, the Hiding Place? Oh, goodness. Most everybody here has read it. Um, Corey Tenboom. She was, how old was she? 59 years old at the time of her arrest. 
59 years old. She was a pretty old lady. I'm not 59, so I can, I can say that. <laughs> what, are you look, what are you rolling your eyes for? <laughs> well, don't, I mean, the book, The Hiding Place, goes into a lot more detail about what happened to Corey Tinboom. She had a job that I cannot imagine in the prison camp. I'm, I'm, I don't even want to say it. <laughs> she, let's say it this way. She cleaned the outhouses. But yet, she found time to bring God to those people, especially Jews who have never heard about God. She had a little thing of, uh, in, the, in the hiding place I talk about, she had a little medicine bottle, and it had a little bit in there. And she used that for months. And every time she'd dip down and use it, it, would, like a, it was like a vitamin. Or I, I can't remember what it was, but it kept people from getting sick. She would use it. There'd always be enough there. It only ran out when she was free. Now, what I'm going to say, and what I wrote down was, she was uh, freed when they didn't mean to free her. She just got put out. And then the next day, she found out that all women her age were killed. Isn't that something? That's up there too. It's, it's on that second page. On December 28th, after 10 months of incarceration in a concentration camp, she was free. She had lost her father and her beloved sister to the horrors of, whew, of death camps. She was filthy and gaunt and weak. Came, she made her way to the railway station, boarded the train for a three-day journey to Holland. That's where she lived. She had found out that in order had been given at the end of the very week that kill all the women her age and older. An error in prison paperwork was the catalyst God used to release her. Now, I don't know why her sister and her father died. I don't know. But all I know is Corey Tenboom went around the world telling her story after it happened. And many people were affected... Somebody, I read her book one time. I don't know if it's in The Hiding Place or one of the books she wrote. A prison guard who was very mean came to her service after she got out. She had to shake her hand and pray for him or something. Or his, shake his hand. She said, God, help me. That man was mean. He killed a lot of people. But she was able to do that. She forgave him of his sin. And we all have to do that. We all have to forgive. We have to forgive others. Okay, go flip that one more time. I want to read what she said. She said, looking back across the years of my life, I can see the working of a divine pattern, which is the way of God with his children. When I was in a prison camp in Holland during the war, I often prayed, Lord, never let the Germans place me in a concentration camp. God's answered no to that prayer. <laughs> Yet in the German camp, with all its horror, 
I found many prisoners who had never heard of the name of Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a Bible verse that says, lean not on your understanding. So what we, I got this thing in my mind that when somebody dies that is a Christian, they go to, they go to be in heaven. They don't, feel, they don't feel pain. They don't feel anything. But boom, they're gone. Has anybody ever been on a deathbed of someone who reacted? You have? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I believe that even things that would cause us pain if we lived, if we die, we don't. We don't feel anything. I had no respiration and no pulse, and I, yeah, I couldn't breathe. And for a split second, that was all it was, a split second, and then there was absolutely no struggle, no pain, and I was out of my body, and I could see myself. And so I thought, I and my, my mother was doing, you know, she was trying to do... Um, yeah, CPR. She was doing CPR on me, and I was trying to talk to her and say, I'm fine. But then when I saw myself down there, I realized I must be dead. <laughs> and so I was trying to say, I'm fine. And I saw the rescue squad come in. I saw them take my body out. And they started doing all this life-saving thing on me. But before that, it's like, after I was seeing myself, I, I felt that liquid love like you were talking about. This love came over me and this light. And I went through that tunnel like so many people talk about, just toward this most brilliant light, the most beautiful feeling of unconditional love. And I knew it was the Lord. I knew it. And I heard him say to me, not yet. And I remember screaming, no! And then I was back in my body, and I had all this pain. So, um, And I always wondered why the Lord gave me that experience. And later when I was married, um, my husband was diagnosed with cancer. And it was, you know, not good. And so I shared the story with him, and believed with him the whole time that he would live, but it was like that. I feel like we know in part now, and later we will know everything, because even though I always believed, and he believed that he would be healed and live, he did not. But I had peace about it, because I knew what it was like. So I knew that's why the Lord gave me that experience, to give me comfort and peace. Thanks for that. I, I was uh, reading a book, and, and I, Jen's, uh, Jen, her husband died, her first husband, and she, she got interested in near-death experiences. So we, we were reading one. I, I read one book, and, and somebody, I think it was a kid, he said to the doctor, Doctor, I, I came out of my body. And I, I looked down, and I saw myself on the, on the bed, and the doctor said, 
He didn't do that. He said, well, there's a box right above that thing, <laughs> a tile, ceiling tile. And, and they went up and found a box right where he said it would be. <laughs> so uh, this, uh, this hospital in New Hanover, I knew the uh, anesthesiologist very well. And he would keep track of those. those near, he, if somebody's heart stopped, he would interview them if they came through it and uh, talk to them about what happened. So he had a, a whole notebook full of, of, of testimonies. But so I believe there's enough that we don't have to worry about death. And this, it's hard for us not to be afraid. There, uh, Joyce Meyer said something. She said, walk in fear. If you're afraid, keep walking. Yeah. Do it anyway. And do it anyway. Do it yeah, and what you're doing is you're saying, God, I trust you, even though I don't understand this. And, and I was listening to some guy on uh, one of the prophetic things that went around and email, text messages. And this uh, preacher, I guess he was a preacher, he said he bought a gun because, because of all that's going on. And I said, I don't know what to think about that. Well, how do, I, don't, I don't know if that's correct or not. I guess we used to have to ask God, what, what do we do? <laughs> what do we do? Uh, because there's, there's a time when you don't have to do all that. <laughs> and, and the place you're going to go to is a whole lot better than this. <laughs> we all have hard, hardship. And life, I, I, I say life is hard. Life is hard. And uh, we all have, have a story. And we've all been there and done that. <laughs> and I think when people like you get wonderful experiences, they, they find God gave you that experience for a reason. I don't know what that reason is. <laughs> I don't know. All right, the next one is C.S. Lewis. Now, C.S. Lewis had a lot of influence on my life. And uh, the, first, the first book, Mere Christianity, that I put down here, C.S. Lewis wrote that book, and I, it settled for instant, it settled Jesus Christ in my mind. When I read that book, I said I was convinced that Jesus Christ was, was, was who he says he was. Has anybody ever had that experience? How many of y'all have read Mere Christianity? Okay. Most half, at least half of you. Uh, C.S. Lewis had a great understanding uh, of, you know, of what is going to happen. So he wrote it in Mere Christianity, and his proofs of, of Jesus Christ are the best I've ever read. Now, I've never read The Problem of Pain and Christian Behavior. Has anybody ever read these? The Great Divorce? Surprised by Joy, there was a movie about that. I saw the movie, but I've never, never read the book. Joy is, a, is his wife? Okay. Now, he wrote the, the Chronicles of Narnia. He wrote those. I mean, they've been on TV, too. Yeah, they walk in, the, in, a, in a, what do you call it, a ship robe, they call those. Walk in there, and then they're in another world. 
So the imagination was awesome. Right? Uh, in 1929, he gave me and admitted that God was God, and he prayed, the hardness of God is kinder than the softest of men. Softness of men. His compulsion is our liberation. Lewis's final step to Christianity came when he accepted the incarnation of Jesus Christ as a fact. <laughs> okay, let's talk about next next guy, Spurgeon. Have you guys ever heard of Charles Spurgeon? Oh, yeah, he was. I didn't know he was a Baptist. English Baptist. There have been, now this is what, it's amazing. There have been more material in print by Charles Spurgeon than any other Christian ever alive or dead. Now, I didn't know that. There's more written about, but I, I, I came from the South, and, and the biggest church in the South is always the Baptists. <laughs> I said, I was thinking to myself, oh, that's because the Baptists are big down there. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know if that's the reason that, that uh, people buy his books, but they're awesome. He preached in 1851 from the beginning of his ministry. His style and ability were noted far above average. His ministry, his style and ability were noted his flamboyance in the pulpit earned him a title of the Preaching Boy Wonder, the Prince of Preachers. I, I felt like Michael Thornton was one of those. I believe that uh, Charles Spurgeon and Michael Thornton, Michael Thornton was given all this stuff, but it's not easy. He's had to do a lot of things. But he's a wonderful preacher. I, I, I don't th I've never heard better. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon was the guy that, all right, he suffered constantly from, now listen to this, he suffered constantly from various ailments and fell into serious depression at times. He had rheumatic gout that eventually took his life at the age of 57. He said, suffering equips us to be used by God. It burns away the selfish side of us that often demands attention and position. So just because you're suffering doesn't mean you're not, right with God. And I think this, as I read about these people, the generals, I realized that many of them had, had disease. Many of them had, uh, I'm going to talk about uh, one in particular, one, one Wednesday night. I got uh, one more Wednesday night that I had. Uh, this, this deliverance minister that Tom talks about, I can't think of his name now. That went out of my mind. He, he uh, was chosen by God. He was 17 years old, and he was dying. Lester Summerall, that's his name. Lester Summerall. He was dying at 17. I don't know what, I can't remember what it was from. But he had one more day to live. The doctor said he'll be dead in the morning. So family, get around. So he closed his eyes on his deathbed, and he had, a, he had a vision. He saw. He said, I saw the biggest casket and the biggest Bible in the world. He said, the Bible was over here, the casket was over here. And he said, I heard this voice say, do one or the other. You can either go in that casket, or you can read the Bible. He said, well, Lord, I don't know anything about you, but I'll tell you what. I like that Bible. <laughs> so, and uh, he'll, he'll tell that story 
I'm going to show y'all a videotape of of his uh, his uh, story. Lester has he's a colorful character. He really is. But God knew what he would do and what he would be. And he, his story, I've read his books, I've listened to a lot of his story. It's really awesome. Yeah, he talks about him. He talks about Smith Wigglesworth. What I remember, I read a, I read a book by Wigglesworth. This woman, God, he said he heard God say, hit her. So he hit her in the chest right there. And she fell over. And God says, that's not hard enough. So she gets up again, and he pokes her harder. And she fell down. I don't know if she fell down because of it, but she didn't feel anything, and she was healed. <laughs> he was quite a guy. <laughs> oh, this is David Livingston is the next one. He was one of God's generals. I, I, I read a book by David Livingston. I've heard that. Y'all ever heard that name? Uh, he was, uh, what, I guess Stanley, his buddy. You're Livingston, I presume. That's what he says when he saw him. The second page talks about that. He was born on 1813, March 13th. That's two days short of mine. In Scotland, where he spent the first 23 years of his life, his parents were devout Christian and played an important role in his life by introducing him to the subject of missions. He was a doctor. After completing medical school, he, had t he accepted a position with the London Missionary Society in South Africa. And on 1840, he set sail for this crewman, crewman in South Africa. That's the name of a city in South Africa. I looked it up. <laughs> It's a city in South Africa. So Livingston, what amazed me, and go ahead and go to the next slide. We'll talk a little bit more about him. He completed one of the most amazing journeys ever undertaking, a coast-to-coast -coast venture that covered 4,000 miles of unexplored land, most of which was located along the Zambezi. Now, have you ever heard of Victoria Falls? That's the Zambezi River. So Livingston saw that, and he said, wow, you know. So I went on the Internet today, and I saw that, too. <laughs> so it is awesome. Who? North Carolina? Oh, okay. Yeah, I saw some houses kind of tucked off in the corner. And... uh I read the book about Livingston, but do you know that Livingston never won a person to Christ? Never won a person to Christ. Now, isn't that amazing? He was definitely used by God. And uh, it said Livingston was beloved and honored by the world. Yet when Stanley found him, he was weak and undernourished. The two quickly began a friendship. And after Livingston's death, it was Stanley who diligently worked to see the missionaries serving the land his friend had opened. So basically, they didn't believe that Africa was that big. He, so he said, well, I'll prove it. But his, his, his the biography is full of talking to Jesus, being an awesome Christian man. But he never 
had the gift of being able to tell someone about Jesus. He did have visions. He said, all Africa will be one for Christ. That was one of his prophetic words. And he said, missionaries will come all over Africa to, to win the lost. So he had a lot of visual visions, but he didn't, uh, he didn't win the people to go to Christ. All right, the next one is David Trout. I've never heard of this guy. The Reverend Billy Graham preached the funeral of Dawson in 1956 after Troutman died while rescuing a swimmer at an upstate lake, upstate uh, New York. Listen, I think Troutman has personally touched more lives for Christ than anybody I have ever known. But Graham knew him, and the ministry founded the Navigators. Has anybody heard of the Navigators before? Oh, that's a fa- I've heard of it. Basically, tells you how to get saved. It used to be uh, really awesome. Uh, in fact, Billy Graham passed them out. When someone got saved, they would uh, get the Navigators booklet. I'd never heard of this guy, and, and he did wonderful things. Now, the next one is Dwight Moody. Now, I went to Chicago. Um, we went to visit Jan's friends a long time ago. And at downtown Chicago was the Moody Bible Institute and Moody Publishing House. That came from him. It's estimated during his lifetime he traveled more than one million miles, spoke to more than 100 million people, and led hundreds of thousands, if not millions, to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's interesting, the second paragraph said, when I first began to preach, I could tell by the expressions on their faces they were praying for me. When he asked, he was informed that they were praying for me. They said, you need power. Why, he thought, he had power. Those left him with a great hunger for the power of the Holy Spirit. On the next page, he revealed, revealed power, and it was great. He said, I can only say that God revealed himself to me. I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. Now, Randy Clark talks about somebody that says, Oh, Lord, don't do the, keep giving this to me. You're going to kill me. And he had mentioned to God, I'd never do that when somebody else said he did it. And uh, it happened to him, too. He began to preach again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truth, yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before the blessed experience. If he should give me all the world, it would be like dust in the balance. So this, this is an example. Moody had an example. I, I, uh, I think we have a guy in our church here, Douglas... Doug's hard. He's he's really outgoing and he's a real big guy. He walks by people and says, "What's your name? Do you know Jesus Christ?" It's like Katie. Katie does that sometimes, and uh, he's a great soul winner. And I think he's been given that gift of doing that. And uh, I don't know. Now, has anybody ever heard of the next one, Fanny Crosby? All right, look at the songs. 
glory, right in the middle of the page, it says, To God be the glory. Praise him, praise him. Tell me the story of Jesus. I am thine, O Lord. Every song is a testimony of her love in Jesus Christ. Now, what's unusual about Fanny Crosby? That she's a blind lady. She always would. Now, this is something that I've been convicted of. Uh, she, uh, uh, Derek Prince, when he was saved and had the, his wife was as old as his mother. That's amazing. <laughs> but everything she did, she prayed before she did it. Even when she was changing a diaper, she would pray, Lord, help me with this diaper. And it worked, it worked for her. And, and that's what Fanny Crosby would do. Before she wrote a song, she'd pray. Lord, help me with this song. Give me the right lyrics. And we sing them today. <laughs> to God be the glory. That's one of the, my favorite songs. Y'all ever heard that? Y'all have heard that before. Yeah? The next page says, the gifted, she's a gifted poet who uh, described her salvation experience as a flood tide of celestial light. But she could not actually see the light. She was blind at, age, at six weeks old. Later, she said, it, might, it may seem a little old-fashioned always to begin one's work with prayer, but I never undertake a hymn without first asking the good Lord to be my inspiration. So that, that convicted me that when I'm doing something, uh, whether it's for God, I want God to with me at that time. And the guy... The angel, your angel will get off the couch. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully oh, we had a guy that used to come to this, this church that he went in his house and there was an angel sitting on the couch. That's another. That was free. <laughs> okay, next slide. Okay, Francis Schaefer. Now, I used to, I'd, I've heard of him, but I thought he was a little bit off, off base. He was in, um, I had a friend who went to Europe, and they stayed in a house that Francis Schaeffer had bought. And I didn't think much of Francis Schaeffer. He was a kind of a, a modern guy. From, he said after a time of self-proclaiming agnostic, he, was this, he decided to read the Bible. This is a, a big mistake. Don't ever read the Bible if you're an agnostic <laughs> or an atheist because you will, you will believe after you get through, uh, uh, what's his name? Mother uh, Charlotte. We went to Charlotte to see him as a tent ministry. Oh, I'll think of it in a second. Anyway, he said. Uh, he said the Bible was the only book, and he loved to read. It was the only book he could find. So he read the book, and he said, "By the time I got through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it was the New Testament." He said, "I realized it was true." He was an atheist. He, was, he, would, he would read with a candle under his bed, under his mattress, or not mattress, but cover. To stay warm, he would use a candle. They didn't have electricity. And uh, he, he read the Bible and believed, and then he had a religious experience that changed his whole life. And that same... Almost all these generals that have done great things is, have had a religious experience. Like yours, like, like going to, to heaven. 
and uh, we, that we don't we don't say, God, if you don't give me a religious experience, I'm not going to serve you. <laughs> I'm not saying that. <laughs> Schaefer was frequently criticized by non-believers, but more surprisingly by many believers. Again, I was one of those that were worried that the explicit stance or stand he took for the the bold and constant application of the Bible. He would uh, start these homes all over Europe. He was really into going across to Europe. Uh, and he would start these homes, and they would flourish. I was uh, reading a book about a guy who started a, 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 uh, started a uh, children's home. What are they? And so he didn't have any money. So his kids, he had about 30 kids at the time of this story, and they were sitting at a table, big table, and they didn't have any food, nothing to eat. And they were all sitting there with their fork and getting ready to eat. And he said, I'm sorry, folks, but you're going to have to pray because I don't have any. So they, they start praying. And somebody knocks on the door and says, hey, I got this milk. You guys want it? It's going it's to go rotten by tomorrow. So they, took, they, they got milk. Then somebody came in. He had cheese. So milk and cheese, that's all they had to eat, but that, that was enough. That got him through that meal. He had a miracle after miracle happened in his orphanages in London, England. I can't think of the guy's name. I just wish I could. He was an awesome guy. Okay. This guy here, you've all heard the, the story of Handel. Have y'all, George Frederick Handel. For 24 days, he had not left his house. His friend bought him trays of food, but he ate only little. Completely immersed in composition of the Bible reading, he let nothing deter him from the colossal work, as he put it, the finishing touches on the Hallelujah Course. Has anybody ever done that? Ever heard that? Hallelujah Course? What do you do when, when they start to sing it? You stand. When, they, when somebody sings the Hallelujah Chorus, everybody stands. Now, if you've never heard it, maybe you wouldn't do it. <laughs> it's, uh, but uh, it's, it's, it's the, in respect, people stand for, in respect to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. It says, since 1742, generations of music lovers around the world have risen to their feet at the awe-inspiring, majestic sound of Handel's Messiah. If you have never heard it, go to Google and say Messiah, Handel's Messiah. <laughs> if you've never heard it, you'll hear it again. All right, the next one, the last one, I think it's the last one. It's not the last one. Hudson Taylor, has anybody ever heard of him? He was a missionary for China. He was born in a Christian home. And uh, in 1832, his parents had prayed, Dear God, if you should give us a son, grant that he may work for you in China. He did. Isn't that something? God gave him them a son, and he worked in China. He started what's called the China Inland Missions. In 1865, he returned to China, where he labored in Christ for 40 years. He was a, in China, he's a very famous man. Even today, Hudson Taylor. 
great missionary for China. All right, the next guy, Jim Elliott. And now I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but I heard of him when I was in my teens. His wife, have you ever heard of Elizabeth Elliott? She's been on the radio until the last few years. She, uh, I think last five years, five years ago she went off. They taught about the, the Aka, Aka Indians as they and their wives were, were ministering to the speaking Indians. Well, I can't, I can't pronounce it. The Akas had killed. I, the story, oh, the, this is a good, good, the Akas had killed strangers for centuries. And he had a rifle, but he wouldn't use it because he didn't want to send anybody to hell. Now, isn't that something? That, that impressed me as a teenager. He had a rifle. They landed. What they would do is they would drop their rope with a bucket on the end of it, and they would take their plane in a circle, and they would the Indians would grab the bucket. So as their planes went around, they looked inside and got out, got what the, the gifts they gave them from the bucket. So they knew them, and they knew about the plane, but they'd never seen a plane probably <laughs> that close. But they landed on a sandy sandy uh, beach, on a, on a creek. And Jim Elliott and two other men, I think Nate Satan and there's some Nate Saint and then some other man, I can't think of his name. They were all three killed by the the uh, Indians. I, I heard a story. I read the story about him going to McDonald's. The chief of the Indians got saved because Elizabeth Elliott went back to the Indians and says, "I'm the one you killed." my husband, <laughs> and then she led them to Christ. But the chief got saved. So they let the chief that became friends of theirs, the son had forgiven the chief for killing his, his father. His father. And uh, they went to McDonald's, went through, the, went through the window. You know, the, what do you call those things? They went drive-through. That's it. <laughs> That's a term I couldn't use. Drive-through. So they were going through the drive-through, and they gave him some food, and uh, the, the son of Jim, Jim Elliott gave him a plastic card. And he said, America, nice place. He said, you give them a plastic card, they give you food. <laughs> he couldn't even understand the banking system that we have in our country and uh, what it really means to us. So Jim Elliott was quite a guy, but his wife probably did more for God than he did than he did during his life. So the fact that he wouldn't kill if he'd have shot that gun, they'd have probably been so scared they would have run away. And those three people would not have would not have died. So I heard this in the 50s when I was a, a teenager at that time. I was a young teenager. <laughs> but this this impressed me back then, especially when he when he had a gun and didn't use it. He put it back in the it, they they came out on the sandy place where they landed, and he pointed the gun at him and he said, "Nah, I'm not going to shoot him." And he put it back in the on the airplane, and the spears came flying. But but the tribesmen saw angels. They didn't know that, but later on, they they would they would confess to Elizabeth, we saw. These angels come all around him. 
I don't know what they were doing there <laughs> or what they were. It scared them to death. But uh, God, God showed the, so his, anyway, he had a tremendous, uh, that dying for Jesus gave him a tremendous platform to win others for Christ. Okay. Many Akas eventually came to Christ. Okay, Catherine Kuhlman. Now, Catherine Kuhlman is the last one, right? Yeah. She, uh, the quote that I have is, hundreds of have been healed just sitting there quietly. Now, Catherine Kuhlman, if you look in her life, and I've read her life, she was divorced. She was married. Her husband was good to her. She left him. So if you look at her life, it didn't, uh, it wasn't smooth. <laughs> you would say, how in the world is God using it? But yet she would go, her last message, she would count the seats and pray for each seat because she knew that the audience would, would be full. And she would pray for the person that's going to sit in that seat. She was quite a, quite a lady. She was awesome. But she could not speak. I remember being at, uh, working at a gas station in my 20s and hearing her. I was at uh, Wellsburg, West Virginia is where I was working. And they had the radio turned on, and she talks weird. So she would hold it out. Hello. <laughs> this is Catherine. I mean, she was... Very dramatic. And she wore these long sleeve things. If you go on the internet, you can see her. Yeah, she's, she wears these long sleeve things, and her sleeve hangs down to here. And she's flowing. She looks like a witch with, with polish. <laughs> but she's an awesome Christian lady. <laughs> Benny Hinn, uh, uh, some of his ministry, I think, was started by her. He came into the room on a con. And, and felt vibrating. He was vibrating. He, his testimony is that he went to a Catherine Kuhlman conference. And she would say, like Benny Hinn, this whole place, you're going to fall down. And that would fall down. She was amazing. And um, she started in uh, near, near where I used to live, or yeah, near Wellsburg, West Virginia, right across into uh, Washington, little Washington. She, she built a church there, and she became the minister of that church. It was Jefferson something. And she became a minister. But she, most of what she did, she uh, went around the country like uh, Joyce Meyer does. Joyce, Joyce Meyer, I love Joyce. I mean, I had a stack of, of CDs that big, and I listened to all of them in my car. <laughs> I stick them in every time one would. I'd be driving somewhere, and every time one would go out, I'd stick another one in. <laughs> so I listened to every one of them. I just love her. All right, hundreds have been healed just sitting quietly. Let's read the. Let's, uh, one more slide, Jim. There, right there, Catherine Kuhlman. Yeah, hundreds have been healed just sitting quietly in their audience without any demonstration whatsoever. None. Very often, not even a sermon. There's never, there have been times when not even a song had been sung. She was very confused by the ministry of healing in her day. Many were not healed, were blamed for their lack of faith. Have you ever heard of that? 
You didn't have enough faith to be healed. Randy Clark used to say, and I've been on a lot of mission trips. I, I think I've been on 17 mission trips. <laughs> and Randy Clark, uh, 10 of those was led by Randy, and the others are led by Tom. But he used to say, it's not about failure of the person you're praying for. If, if they don't get healed, that doesn't mean you didn't have enough faith or they didn't have enough faith. Now, this is a mystery. I do not know why. Some die and some don't. I went to, um, oh, five years ago, I went to Nepal, and I prayed for those people in Nepal, and I think it was about 26 people, and all I did was saying, Jesus, you know what's wrong with them. Heal it in Jesus' name. And they were healed. All 26 of them, them. all of them were healed. Now, isn't that something? You don't have to be you know, awesome with your slick tongue. <laughs> some people can, can pray, pray a house. Can, I mean, but some people just don't, don't pray with short sermons and short lessons. Uh, Daisy, you know Daisy? She goes to this church? Yeah. Daisy having surgery on Friday, right? Just keep her in mind and pray for her. But she's, we talked to her today in a prayer meeting. And, and she's a, uh, she, was, she woke up one morning a couple of weeks ago and her husband didn't know who she was. Her husband woke up and says, who are you? <laughs> he didn't remember how old he was. He didn't remember the house he was living in. I, I think he must have had a stroke or something. I, I don't know. And she said, pray for my husband. And she walked up right over there. Me, me and Jan were standing there. And she walked up and said, pray, pray for my husband. He doesn't know who I am. He doesn't know anything. So we prayed for her. I said, Lord, heal her husband. I didn't get real delicate about it. And I, I may have said a few more things. But then I looked at my watch, and it was about 11 or 1230. I said, go home and ask your husband at 1230 what, what happened. And she did that. At 1230, he was healed. Isn't that something? That's something that uh, we cannot explain, uh, but you don't have to, uh, Derek Prince says, you don't have to be loud to cast out demons. <laughs> Just tell them to leave. And, and they'll leave. <laughs> if you don't believe there's demons, there are demons. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's not by lack of faith. The last slide says, I was disgusted with the unwise performances that I had witnessed, none of which I could associate in any way whatsoever with either the action of the Holy Spirit or the nature of God. It was common for tumors to dissolve, cancers to fall off, the blind to see, and the deaf to hear. Migraine headaches were healed instantly, even teeth were filled. Has anybody been to a service where teeth were filled? Yeah, I was at a service once with a guy. They put the camera in his mouth. And we could see it, you know, look, look at that tooth. It wasn't there. <laughs> and it was a gold tooth, solid gold. And it was, he said he had had, he didn't have any teeth. <laughs> he was an old guy and uh, didn't care about that kind of stuff much. Didn't have any money for the dentist. But he was healed. By, I think he got about four to six 
new teeth. <laughs> In Argentina, that used to happen all the time. In some revivals, it does seem to happen. But uh, it, it's just, we cannot explain why. But it happens. Well, it's about five till. Let's, let's stand up and I'll let you go.